Father, we give thanks for your word. Amen. So many of us will know this letter. It's so wonderful. It's one of my favorites. As I said, the, the verse um, in, in verse 6, that he who began a good work and you will carry on to completion is my baptism verse um, that was written into my Bible in 1991 as a young adult. And last week we explored in Acts 16 the occasion when Paul brought Christianity to mainland Europe effectively for the first time. When Christendom, so to speak, began with the planting of the church at Philippi. That was about AD um, uh, 52. Now we come to Paul's letter, which is 10 years after Acts 16. Paul is in prison again. It's like he's collecting stamps, isn't it? And maybe if he gets 10 imprisonments, he gets one for free. Paul is in another prison, probably in Rome. There is some debate about where he might be. Um, but he's awaiting uh, a hearing from the emperor, the lovely emperor, the well-meaning emperor, the one who had all the goodwill towards the people, the lovely, the kind, the benevolent Emperor Nero, known for his love and generosity. No, he was a megalomaniac. He was a wicked man, one of the most wicked that definitely goes in the category of Hitler and Stalin and Genghis Khan for sure. And so he's awaiting his trial in prison, and he's hearing a couple of things about this 10-year-old church. Think back to when you were 10. You were just a fledgling, weren't you? When I was 10, I was just a fledgling. I needed nurturing and protecting. And it's the same for the church. They're just 10 years old. Paul is responding to some actual problems and potential problems as he writes. But I want to show um, some of the headlines from 1981 when I was 10. Watch some of these headlines here. Some newspaper headlines. It looks like they've come out of our world today. Look, hang on a minute, go back a bit. Do you remember that? I thought you might. Go to the next one. Okay, this is from Northern Ireland, a couple of young boys there. And uh, next one, yep, weather, snow. We see that every year. The, the classic, um, who's that? Han Solo, uh, Blondie, is it? I don't know. And Steve Davis, bottom left. For, this was the um, uh, 180 people injured in London in a race riot, firebomb rampage. Next one. To think this is England, this is the Brixham riots, I think. Next one. Bloodbath on market day. And see, it's horrific, isn't it? The, the news that we've all lived through. Uh, this is, stay on this one. This is me as a whippersnapper. I want you to notice the technique of me heading the ball, firstly. The fact that that goal was amazing. It definitely wasn't offside. Uh, the stature, the posture of the heading of the ball. The strength of the neck. No, no, forget all that. No, no. This is me playing football with my brothers and my dad, probably, at Noth Fort Gardens in Weymouth. And uh, we went there, actually, this summer for our holidays as well. It was amazing to go back there. But yeah, that is, that's how you header a ball. I was one year away from secondary school then, where I encountered my first megalomaniac teacher, a history teacher, a communist, who terrified me and my classmates about an imminent nuclear catastrophe. It's what they did in the early 90s. So I understood the megalomania. And Paul is waiting to hear from this emperor, this unstable whippersnapper of an emperor 
who just decides later on in his career to um, burn Christians to keep light in the city of Rome, to send Christians and entire groups into the Colosseum for his own fun and edification, to be eaten alive by wild animals. This is the world that Paul is in. The church is young, it needs protecting, and it's vulnerable. And so Paul is writing to them from prison. So before we go through the opening verses, I want to look at some, some essential Bible study questions. House group leaders, Bible study leaders do this. And this is the background and context of what we will be looking at. Number one, we need to identify the genre of the letter, of the, of the book we're reading. In our case, this is a first century letter. Number two, we examine all of the issues around the authorship. We know Paul wrote Philippians. But how do we know Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, and Luke wrote Luke, and John wrote John? We don't. We don't even know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But there are loads and loads of issues around it. It's, very, it's a very interesting exercise to go into some of these questions. We discover when the book was written. And we know that this one was written in the early 50s AD. We, we, we looked last week um, when the church began. So we go back into the book of Acts where possible to discover the founding or the origin of the church. Um, we become historians and we dig into the, as we saw in the video, the historical background of the town. Philippi was known as a very proud place. Why do you think Paul talks about humility so much in the letter? He's countering a historical context that was true to the Philippians. Amazing. We, just, we, we, we examine closely the types of people that made up the church. There'd have been young and old, rich and poor, from different levels of the social status. And we make a helpful list of the church's strengths and weaknesses as we just read through the four chapters. Two final key ones. I would encourage you to read through these four chapters in one sitting two or three times. Get a feel and a flavor for the book. Get it afresh. Why get it afresh? You might have read it loads of times, but get it afresh for God's word for you today. And then ask yourself, what is the main idea of this book? What is the idea that is driving this book? And of course, the final one is the major reason it was written why did Paul write on this occasion to this particular church these particular words and ideas? So this is all Bible study stuff. And it goes with the tagline of the most important thing. Context is king. If we want to read our Bibles faithfully and well, then we read it in context. And these questions are brilliant to help us frame those questions. I have... Um, these questions set out like this. If anybody wants to have one of these, there's one for the Old and New Testaments here. Really essential questions for learning how to do Bible study and get into the background. And it's not difficult. It's very, very easy. So I hope that encourages you. Okay, so these are aspects that help us unlock the passage and the Bible as we come to read it. When we come to a letter, it's like, has anyone here ever sneakily listened in to someone else's phone conversation. Yes, you little rat bags. And what are you getting from, a, from someone listening in on a phone conversation? Half the conversation, right? Not the whole thing. 
And it's very easy for things to be taken out of context or misunderstood or misheard or misapplied, but you're only getting what you can physically hear one person saying. A letter is exactly like a phone conversation. So we need to dig down into the context and the background to understand what the other part of that conversation is saying and doing. So our responsibility though, of course, is to do all of this stuff as Christians, as, uh, you know, according to our ability and our, and our, our wherewithal, but it, our responsibility is to do this. Why? So that we then apply this thing to our life. We apply it. So I've got some homework for you, church. Hey, I've got some homework for you. So I don't know whether you've done this. Some of you may have done this before, especially for the older Christians. This is so familiar, but I would like you to, as pastor, I can say this, read through Philippians two or three times. Maybe consider these questions that we've looked at that will help you unlock interpretation and meaning. But sit down with a steamy hot cup of coffee one morning with the sunlight coming through the windows, right? We know that's the best devotional time. And ask God, how does this apply to my life? You ask God how this applies to your life. Nothing other than scriptures in Nothing other than the scriptures in front of you. But saying to God, God, I'm coming to your word that's living and active again and fresh as if for the first time. Feed me by your word. What are you saying to me today, right now, through the context of the whole letter, four chapters? What are you saying to, it, to me, Lord, today through this? So that's all, that's all the homework is. You don't have to hand it in. I will trust that you will all do it and then start sharing with uh, each other what God has said. It's a profound exercise to do because it puts the burden of responsibility onto you as Christians to do that, to seek the face of God in the scriptures, through the scriptures and with the scriptures, right? So that's our responsibility. So today we're looking at the first 18 verses. This letter has been described and rightly so as a practical handbook for Christians. Don Carson, one of my um, theological heroes, calls it basics for believers, and he divides the, this section up into three really helpful ways for us to understand the priorities. Now, the reason why we have church every week and why we have preaching every week and why we read the scriptures hopefully most days, if not every day, is because our priorities are often not gospel priorities. Other things are coming in all the time. Pressures, life, sickness, anything that comes in can squeeze out the priority of the gospel at any moment. That's why church is so regular. That's why we're encouraged to be in the word. But, so we come to the, uh, we come to the scriptures and we are having our priorities reset in so many different ways. These are the ways that Don Carson calls it, three central concerns. The first one is to put the fellowship of the gospel at the center of your relationships with believers. I'll say that again, to put the fellowship of the gospel at the center of your relationships with believers. These are the first uh, first uh, three to, verses three to eight, sorry, verses 
of the chapter, relations of the gospel uh, with each other. Number two, to put the priorities of the gospel at the center of your prayer life, verses 9, 10, and 11. Notice how Paul is centralizing the priority of the gospel as his prayer is, is, is prayed in the opening um, prayer of thanksgiving here. And number three, are they there? Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations, verses 12 to 18. Putting the advance of the gospel at the center of everything that you aspire to. Now, every one of us will have aspirations, hopes, dreams, and visions. What are your aspirations? Paul says, Scripture says, put the gospel at the center of all your aspirations. So number, let's go back to the number one. I think it's, uh, is there another one? Yes, fellowship. So I'm just going to cover each of these three as we go through the text here. Um, what verse was that? That was verse, uh, verses three to eight. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began this good work will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Can you feel his passion for people? Can you feel his love? His driving concern is the gospel at the center of their partnering with him in the gospel. So his prayer is not just mere prayer, but prayer, get this, mixed with joy. Wow. Mixed with joy. Should prayer be ever mixed with joy? <laughs> It's a serious question, guys. Prayer is a very serious business. It's us talking to God. It's God talking to us. I love Mother Teresa's um, answer when she was asked, what happens when you pray? And she just simply said, I gaze at God and God gazes at me. There's something about the beauty of just the gaze as well, knowing that, that in Christ we are accepted and forgiven and reconciled to God in all these things. So we can gaze on God and not be destroyed, but we can be gazed upon and be loved. But consider, really, for us, this is why we need our priorities resetting. What gives us the most joy? Some of us are concerned about the plummeting pound. Maybe uh, the loss of value in some of our pensions. Maybe some of us are worried about all sorts of other things. Personal success, getting more stuff, a well-paid job for our kids where the gospel isn't really a priority, but as long as they're okay, then it's okay. What about even the demise of our enemies? In 3 John verse 4, John knows what Paul knows when he writes, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. Stunning. No greater joy. I've got three grown-up kids. I've got five grandchildren. 
I've got a little, little Laura as well, as you know. I have to constantly remind myself that as a Christian, my priority for them must be the gospel. They will be the most fulfilled in Christ with the gospel at the center of everything that emanates around their life. So that whatever they do, whether they eat or drink or wherever they work or however they live, that Christ is the center and not just a periphery member of their lives. There's got to be the longing, right? It's got to be the goal and the desire of our hearts for our children and for our church. I have no greater joy than that my children are walking in the truth. It's wonderful. But this is not mere fellowship or mere affection or sentimental lovey-dovey remembrance. It's none of those things because it says in verse 5, Paul is talking about your partnership in the gospel. The Philippian church are supporting Paul in his ministry. He's writing also partly to thank them for their gifts. You see that at the end of the four chapters. They're partnering with him. They're at the heart of the relationships here. This is to say that the gospel is unflinchingly central. That all of our relations and our fellowship with each other flow out of that truth. Or we're just a social club with a religious hint. Who wants that? No, we want the gospel at the heart to be reminding each other of what Christ has done for us. To be encouraging one another. When we fall, we've got, we've got you around to pick us up. When we stumble and we do, when we walk in the night and can't see, we need the light. But this is also something beyond friendly chit-chat, though it includes chit-chat. Paul makes an oath. Did you notice the oath in verse 8? He says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You'd think he was using the preacher's exaggeration at this point, but you can see that his heart is for these people. How I long for you as I long for Christ. It's an astonishing thing that Paul is saying here in the, in the expression of this oath. So this is beyond now mere, mere partnering, signing on the dotted line. It's beyond mere professionalism. It's beyond theatrics or acquaintances or even exaggeration. But what does this mean for us? What ties us together? ultimately. What do we talk about after the services, week in, week out, or around the dinner tables? What do we talk about during the week? And pay attention to where the gospel features in these conversations, right? Because if it's only about sport and weather and pains and careers and anything but the gospel, keep it. But these things are also important, right? We all have aches and pains and difficulties and setbacks and trouble and strife. We all have these things. They're all important, but they're not the priority, church. We must be reset by the gospel. So I'm going to paraphrase now something that Carson himself says. None of these topics 
should be excluded from our conversations, of course. In sharing our lives, these things do come up. But what must tie us together as Christians is this passion for the gospel, this fellowship for the gospel. Nothing else is strong enough to hold this diversity of people together from all these different backgrounds, experiences, ages, men and women, young and old, blue collar, white collar, healthy, sick, fit and flabby. That's Don Carson's word, not mine. Dis uh, different races, incomes, educations, personalities. Doesn't that show you the power of the gospel to hold us together? Which is why Paul in chapter 2 will go on to talk about unity. Because their factions are starting to show in a very proud city where someone doesn't quite think like someone else. And so there's a division. And, he, and Paul educates us in the Christian way in that regard. And uh, I'm very excited to say that Mike will be uh, taking that one because you asked to do that, Mike. And it's my privilege to, to, for you to open up the scriptures for us in, that, in a couple of weeks. So when Christians talk of fellowship, it's nothing but the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ that holds us together. We must see this. This is not just mere social function on a Sunday morning. That's why Galatians 6.6 6 is very clear. This is one of my favorite verses, by the way. Pay attention. Paul says to the Galatian churches, anyone who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Form an orderly cue, please. I mean, you can see why I would lo love that, right? As someone who teaches and preaches regularly. This is in the scriptures. To encourage the one who teaches. As much as the one who teaches is doing the encouraging now, which I hope is, is what's going on. But I love to hear when you've had a light bulb moment. You drop a line in and say, this, this, was, this really spoke to me. I will be honest. I'll be honest at this point. You preachers among, uh, among us will know that it, it's a slog because of the responsibility. Pre teachers are judged harder, the New Testament says, because of the, 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 the responsibility. But I have to say, every time Rachel stands up with a word, everyone starts texting her, oh, that was marvellous. You spoke right. I've still got the sweat dripping from my body. Rachel swans up here like a summer breeze, offers the word, and everyone starts texting her. It's amazing. That's what I would like, please. Thank you. All right? Just a bit more of that. Anyone who's taught the word must share these good things. I love that Paul put this in here. It's really important. Because it guards against the sin of dismissing a person or dismissing a message as though God can't speak through it. Let me ask you a question. Have I ever preached a dud sermon, church? Yeah, thank you, Phil. That is, but I have, all right? We all, any preacher will testify. We have. This might be one is, as well. But don't walk into my trap at this point, will you? Let's imagine this impossible scenario. Let's imagine that I do preach a couple of dud sermons. Let's say two a year. It's not bad, is it? That's all right. Two a year. All right. What is God going to show you in your heart as you sit there in the midst of that dud sermon? What is he drawing out? What poison is coming out? What medicine does the gospel need to give you to show you your attitude in that moment? Do you see how it works in God's economy? Nothing is impossible with God. The sermon may be ropey, <laughs> 
but maybe it's not as ropey as a stinky attitude that's sitting in self-righteous judgment on it. Because God can speak through a sunset and a flower and a dead dog if he wishes. And he can certainly speak through a dud sermon, right? So what is God going to show you? I love it. I love how God does this. Because I'm speaking to myself. I've sat through many a dud sermons. And I'm suddenly aware of my stinking attitude. And that's the thing that God is showing me. Ta-da. Because the exposing of the stinky attitude may be the very reason for the dud sermon in the first place. So nothing is wasted with it. He's like the ultimate recycler. Just everything comes round and comes back to us again and again. Number two, the priorities of the gospel must be central. This is Paul's prayer, 9, 10 and 11. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is astonishing to me, this prayer. Paul does not want the Philippian believers to be satisfied with Luke warm mediocrity and cheap living the gospel is has nothing to do with cheap grace it has nothing to do with making people feel better about themselves it has nothing to do with confirming people in their sins but it's a rescuing redeeming restoring uh, faith that we have in christ and he rescues and redeems and restores us into the priorities of the gospel in our prayer life so he doesn't want them to be living mediocre lives of faith. This is a prayer about abounding in knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge of God, knowledge of our relationships, living in wisdom, the wisdom of God, and a life that displays the fruit of righteousness. I don't know how we assess that properly. How, how would you assess your life in, this, in the light of these words, as a fruit of righteousness. And Paul's in jail. Verse 13 tells us that the imperial guard, the imperial guards of Emperor Nero, even they can't escape the reach of the gospel. It's going right into the palace, right into the heart of em the empire, right into the heart of the beast, so to speak. The gospel is unstoppable in this regard. And so Paul is saying, look, all of the guards are talking about it. They keep me chained up. They can't shut me up. They've locked me up. But here I am. And they are hearing the gospel. Because the fact is a Christian cannot grow in the knowledge of God if bitterness remains a feature of our life. And for Paul to write such a letter of joy whilst his hands and feet are chained. I don't know what I would write if my hands and feet were chained. It worries me what I would write. But it's an astonishing thing. This prayer smashes mediocrity to pieces. Lord, deliver us from mediocre faith. Deliver us, Lord, from mediocre living. And Paul is praying then for, in verse 10, that they may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Anyone here perfect yet? Did I see a hand sneak up anywhere? 
No one is. None of us are perfect, are we? None of us. No one. But as Carson reminds us, we do have among us those who are perfectionists. And that's a problem for some people that we need to be set freed from. I've spoken with this with the swim students over the last couple of years. This problem of perfectionism is a whole other ball game. Don Carson says, perfectionists, for perfectionists, perfection, at least in some areas of life where they excel, becomes a kind of fetish, even a large idol. Coming from someone who is imperfect, who demands perfection from self and from others. It's not a good thing. It's not a good way to live a life that bears the fruit of righteousness. But the perfection that Paul is writing of here is the process of sanctifying grace. We are all recipients of this. Whether you believe or not, here this morning you exist because of sanctifying grace. It's a gift of God. None of us will be pure by our own um, perfectionism. But I tell you this, church, you are made pure and blameless by the purity and blamelessness of Christ, the Son of God, who died for you. It's his perfection that we are found in, right? Verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, you rabble, you sinners, you enemies of God, he who began this good work in you to make you friends of God will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. It's brilliant. And finally, putting the advance of the gospel at the center of our aspirations. Some of Paul's critics were, let's say, delighted that he was in prison. They were concerned that he was bringing Christianity into disrepute. <gasps> Calls himself an apostle? He's in prison? That doesn't look very good, does it? Have they never read the Gospels where Jesus fraternized with Pharisees and prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners of all kinds? bringing Christianity into disrepute by none other than the Son of God, they'd forgotten that God is a God of the impossible. If Jesus wasn't concerned about that, Paul isn't concerned about that, neither should we when our priorities are right. But instead, many others, of course, are strengthened by Paul's situation. He's in prison, proclaiming Christ. His backbone gives them backbone to be lions in the culture, to be lions, people of courage, warriors of faith, men and women of heroic virtue. That's what we want. It's what we need. Because courage begets courage and flip it over and cowardice begets cowardice and we don't want that but Paul isn't dealing here at this point he is in Colossians Paul is dealing with heretics <gasps> we don't like heretics but what do heretics give us the option and the ability and the opportunity to draw out truth to help us to stand on the rock which is Christ sound doctrine truthful speech so we all love a good heretic, right? 
because it helps us know what the truth is. But he's not dealing with heretics as Paul does in Galatians and in Colossians. With the Philippians, he's dealing with preachers who just misunderstand him. They don't know who he is. He's in prison, therefore he cannot be sanctioned by God. Therefore God's judgment must be on him, is the kind of thing that they would be saying. But Paul doesn't care about this at all. Because his priorities are right. The centre of the gospel is the centre of his life. Even if he's chained to a wall, so what? So what if people are misunderstanding him? He says, as long as they preach the gospel, I don't care. Whether for good motive or bad motive, I don't care. As long as they preach the gospel. As long as the gospel concern is central in their life. They would say things like, if Paul is so great and so blessed, why is he in prison? But he's just concerned about the advance of the gospel. So it begs a question as we finish. What are your aspirations, church? What are our aspirations in the gospel? Where we can properly connect with the power of God. The life of Christ that we need so desperately, right? We all have aspirations. But the gospel comes to us and says, is your life shaped by gospel concerns at the center? Or is the gospel just one more thing of a whole load of other competing things? It's for us as individuals and as a church to answer those questions. The gospel is always calling us to serious business with God so that we can be set free from our fallenness and our sin. In relationships and in prayer and in evangelism, the gospel must be first. That's what these opening verses are saying. And when we learn this, and some of us here have, and some of us need to keep learning it, I do, I need to keep learning it, and most of us do. When we do that, we will then endure affliction and persecution, even misunderstanding and misrepresentation from other Christians, and we will be able to say with Paul, what has happened to me has truly served to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we offer all of this up to you, Lord. Pray that your word goes out, Lord, extends out into your beloved people, uh, refreshes us, Lord, and sets us free, gives us food for thought. Lord, may your word in Philippians be life and truth to us. We pray in Jesus' name. All glory to you, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Uh,